covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the rough part. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Livni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jacobed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Isar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nishan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clan. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, as we look at this passage, both your promises and also a lengthy genealogy, God, would you give us insight? Would you help us to see 
and to understand your word, would you help us to know what it is you're telling us? And would you transform us by giving us your word? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that believe and hold fast to you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God is faithful. It's not, uh, maybe, maybe it's not something you hear very often, but it's something we say often to people. God is faithful. Usually in the midst of, of trial or in the midst of, uh, of a tough circumstance. But what do we mean when we say that? What exactly are we saying about God when we say God is faithful? What does that even mean? Moses is in a tough spot. Uh, He has come to Egypt begrudgingly, but he's come. He's come to Egypt and he has done what God has asked him to do. What God has called him to do, what we might even say God has forced him to do, to speak to Pharaoh, to let Israel go. But instead of that working, instead of things getting better, they actually got worse. And isn't that the way it so often is? What we expect, and we talked about this last week, what we expect God to do When we expect him to zig, sometimes he zags, right? Uh, And things are often worse before they get better. And so Moses is in that spot. He's in that that despairing state. I mean, you saw what he said. You heard what he said to the Lord. Why have you done evil to this people? Now, that word for evil in the Hebrew is a lot broader than our word evil. It can mean bad. It can mean suffering. That it has all those in that bucket. It's it's all all that's there. So God, uh, Moses isn't charging God with sin necessarily, but he is frustrated. He expected one thing, and instead he got another. Pharaoh, instead of letting the people go nicely, he made their work harder. He made the people bitter. We see in the passage we just read that they wouldn't even listen to Moses' good news because of their short spirit, brokenness of spirit, or impatience, their harsh slavery, right? Their, Their ears are closed off to what God is going to do because they just can't see a way out. And so it's usually in the midst of a moment like that that we want to say something cheery like it goes on a Hallmark card, God is faithful, but we don't want to be trite. Uh, we, don't, we don't want that to just be a platitude. So we need to unpack what that means when we say God is faithful. And I think this passage gives us several ways to look at that. When we say that God is faithful, what we mean is that he is committed. When he is dedicated. When you think of what a faithful employee would be. Or a faithful spouse would be. Someone who is committed. Someone who's in. And what we, what we see as we read through this passage is that God is faithful. God is committed to saving his people, to rescuing his people. And here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't have anything to do with the people themselves. It has all to do with God and his faithfulness to his own name. 
His faithfulness to his own promises. So God is faithful to rescue his people because God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to keep his word. Nothing outside of God makes him faithful other than God himself. And that's a beautiful thing to believe when everything else slides out of the way. When nothing else is certain. There is no one else, even even the best husband, even the best wife, even the best boss, even the best employee... No one is as faithful as God himself can never swerve or go out of his own lane. And so there's several looks that we're going to take in this passage, several places that God points Moses. He tells him to look to the past. He tells him to look to the future. And then in that random genealogy part, he's telling him to look through the brokenness. Right, and in all these places, we're going to see how God is faithful to his own promises. God is faithful to save, rescue his people. All right? First, look to the past. Moses complains and God responds. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, how I will bring out the people with a mighty hand. Notice this isn't going to, this isn't going to be quaint. This isn't going to be nice. Pharaoh's had his opportunity. Right? Moses went initially as kind of the bargainer. Will you let the people go so that they can go worship the Lord for a three-day feast? And Pharaoh said, absolutely not. And then responded by punishing the people more. And so, God says, here we go. Now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. God reminds, really, God reminds Moses of what he's been saying the whole time. Listen, Pharaoh was never going to say yes. Pharaoh was never going to be nice about this. I knew from the get-go, and I told you from the get-go, that it was going to take a mighty hand. It was going to take force to compel Pharaoh to let go of his control. And so Moses' initial request was really just the warning shot. Now look at the language that God uses. Pharaoh's not just going to say, all right, guys, y'all have fun. We'll see you in a couple days, right? It says Pharaoh's actually going to drive the people out of the land. Pharaoh is going to be so worn out by God that Moses or any Israelite will be the last person that Pharaoh wants to see. Pharaoh's not just going to let them go. He's going to push them out. He's going to drive them out. That's how, that's how much force God is going to use. Why? Why does God have to use a mighty hand? Because there will be no doubt, and we're going to unpack this as we go through the plagues, there's no doubt about who is going to be doing the saving here. God's people are not going to be free because Pharaoh is a nice overlord. And he's gracious and compassionate. No, that will not be the reason that God's people are set free. In fact, Pharaoh's right the opposite, and we've seen that. God's people are not going to be free because Moses is an eloquent, dedicated, masterful speaker. In fact, he's not. And it almost kind of looks like he hates his job. This is the last place that Moses really wants to be. It's interesting when you... Uh, when you watch the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, or uh, for some of the older folks in the room, when you watch the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, Moses kind of looks like this dedicated, this is the right thing to do, I'll go get the people, right? Um, 
That's not Moses, at least not the picture we have. Maybe he was more dedicated in real life, but the the picture we have of Moses is that he's putting up a fight at every every chance he gets. So it won't be Moses' dedication, it won't be Moses' sense of justice that sets the Israelites free. And, by the way, we, we believe that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, so if you, want, if you want any indication that the Bible is a divinely inspired book over against, say, the Book of Mormon or the Quran, just, just compare the way that those two books, compare the way those human authors talk about themselves. I mean, if you were in Moses' position writing this book, would you share the whiny episodes? Right? Would you, would you share just how many times you tried to stop the Lord from sending you to Egypt? Moses is telling on himself. And if you need any other indication that the Bible is a divinely inspired book, there's only, there's only one human in the book who comes off looking good. There's really only one human hero. So if you're inclined to go through the Bible and say, yeah, I'm, I really want to be a Moses kind of guy. Really? You want to be the guy whining in his bedroom because he didn't listen to God the first time? Or David, the serial adulterer and murderer who almost lost his throne to his own son because he wouldn't handle business. What about wise Solomon, who deliberately rejected God's laws concerning the kingdom and so caused a civil war after his death? There aren't many human heroes in the Bible. Actually, as I thought about it this morning, I realized that the, the few women heroes that there are actually come out looking pretty good. Uh, it's all the guys who look pretty rough. Um, compare that, contrast that with, uh, say, the Book of Mormon, where the humans who are the good guys are all really really good they don't do anything wrong they're always making the righteous decision and you realize very quickly that you have one written by men and one inspired by God himself so that he always is the hero and his people and and he's the hero often despite the heroics of his of his people, of the chosen people he uses. So there won't be any doubt when God is done with Pharaoh, there won't be any doubt about who does the saving. It won't be Pharaoh's generosity, and it won't be Moses' eloquence. It will be God himself who will free his people. He is the one who does the work. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses, and he, he wants to reassure him. And he begins by saying, I am the Lord. And that phrase is repeated throughout this whole passage. It's all about the name, right? Remember the Lord. We talked about this. When you see it in all caps in your Old Testament, that's the divine name, the covenant name. It's the English characters, Y-H-W-H. And so we say Yahweh. Um, But it's written in our English Bibles as the Lord. And so that's okay to use too. But God is saying something when he gives Moses his name. He's reassuring Moses. He says, I am the Lord. I walked with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He's pointing Moses to the past. And when I walked with them, I revealed myself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. 
And if we were really technologically savvy, Amy Grant would have started singing just as soon as I said that. Here we go. We had some people alive in the 80s. He says, Reveal, I walked with them. I made myself known to them as God Almighty, right? The, the one who is sufficient in weakness. The one who can cause a 90-year-old woman, a 100-year-old woman to give birth to a baby. The one who can take a scoundrel like Jacob and give him a new name and give him 12 sons. The one who preserves Joseph through slavery in Egypt. I am God All-Sufficient, God Almighty. But I didn't... They used the name Yahweh, but that wasn't really the name that they knew the Lord by. And so... God is telling Moses, I am that same God, and I am revealing more of myself to you now. I have given you my name, I was, and we talked about this way back in Exodus 3, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God who is. And so, Moses, if you want to be assured that I am going to keep my word, just look back. Look back at your ancestors and see how I walked with them and was faithful at every point, how I made promises to them. I promised them a land. I promised to give them a place. We're going to talk about that. I made a covenant with them. I bound myself to them and promised. Just look back, Moses. Look back. God has been faithful in the past. And so when Mo Moses worries that God is going to let them down... What God says to him is, I am Yahweh. Remember. Remember. And then he says, uh, look to the future. Right in verse 5. Moreover, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So I made my covenant in the past, and now I'm going to keep it. Now I'm going to now we're going to go to work. And how do we know? How do we know that God is going to keep his covenant promises? He gives them he gives the Israelites at least 7 there 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 are 6 I wills and there's one you will, but he makes 7 promises to them. And we're going to walk through them right now. Before he begins, before we look at those promises, Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, how does he begin? I am the Lord. It all keeps coming back to the name. I am the Lord. And then he says, and I will bring you, this is a plural you, so if you're a good southerner, it's y'all. I will bring y'all out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I want you to get the picture of that, right? Uh, the same word could be translated yoke. This heavy yoke, this heavy burden that the people have on them from the Egyptians, God says, I will come out and, and I will come and I will bring you out from underneath it. This is the key phrase of Exodus. It's repeated. It's repeated three times in this passage alone, and it's repeated throughout the rest of the book. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you out. I will rescue you or deliver you. Verse 6, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you, rescue you from slavery to them. Those are parallel promises. And I will redeem you. Let's talk about that word, redeem. If you've been, uh, my, my fifth and sixth graders, you've been through um, the communicants class, you know that the word redeem means to purchase with a price. 
when the Old Testament uses this word, uh, what happens is if you were, if you lost all your money and you were forced into slavery or you lost your property, you were forced to have to give it away, you would need a redeemer. You would need someone who's going to come along and buy you out of your slavery, who is going to, who is going to speak for you when no one else could when you were unable to speak for yourself. So if you lost your property, if you lost your freedom uh, through loss of money, through debt, whatever, a, a redeemer would come along and pull you out. He would speak for you. He would pay the price for you. There's also in that word redeemer, there's this idea of avenge, right? The, that the redeemer is also an avenger, somebody who's going to uh, protect you. When when something unjust has happened to you, the Redeemer comes in and he he is your justice. And so when God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, that's what he's saying. I'm coming to rescue you by paying the price for you. I will do whatever it takes to get you out of there. I'm going to flex my muscle, right? When, when the Hebrew says an outstretched arm, that's what it's saying, right? God is going to, God's going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to flex his muscles, right? The veins are going to pop out on the forearms. God is going to get serious with Pharaoh in order to rescue, in order to pay for, buy out his people. And then he says this. I will deliver you, excuse me, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I will take you to myself for a people, and I will be your God. This is the heartbeat of God's promises. This is the heartbeat of the covenant. It's the one constant throughout all of the Bible. From the moment that God begins making covenants with certain people in Genesis 12 all the way through to Revelation, the great promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, I want you to sense the gravity of that. We tend to think of salvation only in, only in limited individualistic terms. We're, we're saved from something. But we really don't often think about what we're saved to. We're common, we, we're, we're used to thinking about being brought out of slavery. But we're not really all that common used to thinking about being brought in to God's, into relationship with God. So you need to understand that salvation is more than just being rescued out from under the burdens. It's actually God saying, I'm bringing you to myself you will be my people, and I will be your God. Right? The heart of salvation is this relationship with God, wherein we can claim God. Not an uncommon notion. We like that part. But also, he claims us. In fact, the reason, that's part of being a redeemer. God is saying, they belong to me. Your power over them is broken. Pharaoh, they belong to me. He will say in Isaiah, I have called you by name. You are mine. And there's, that's, that's the heart and power behind God's saving work. I will bring you to myself 
I will be your God. You will be my people. So God saves us and doesn't just leave us on our own. It's God who saves us. We're not self-made men and women who've done all the work ourselves. No, God saves us to make us his own, to bring us into fellowship with him. And so the result of that is the you will. I will bring you to myself and you will know that I am Yahweh. You will know me. You will walk with me. You will live with me in light of my bringing you out. So I will bring you out. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take you to myself. I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh. And then I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Now, this one, this part of the promise doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. We're not Israelites. We don't live in Israel. And so we don't really understand, like, what, what exactly do we do with this? So, let's see a little bit of background first. It would be helpful to know that this was a, if not the, central part of, of the promises that God made to Abraham. If you were going to be somebody in the ancient world, I mean, if you were going to be taken seriously, if you were going to be a, a people, a nation, you had to have a place. Right? Egypt would not have been Egypt if they did not have a place on the Nile River that we call Egypt. Right? If you were going to be taken seriously, if you were, if you were really a people, you needed a place. And so one of the beautiful things when God comes to Abraham and says, hey, follow me, he says, I'm going to give you a place. And he reiterates that promise to Abraham's son and grandsons and great-grandsons, right, that they would have a place. Here's the thing. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never got their place. They wandered around this land we call Canaan, now Palestine. They wandered around as... Um, Nomads, sojourners, immigrants. It wasn't theirs. They couldn't claim any part of it. I mean, they kept their sheep there, but that was it. There was no place. And then fast forward to this point, all of those people, all their descendants are now not in that place. They are in Egypt in slavery. And so it looks like the promise is actually going backwards. Not only do we not have a place, we're not anywhere near that place. And so it's crucial that God comes in and he says, I'm going to give you the land that I promised your forefathers I would give them. I'm going to give it to you as your possession. You will own it. It will be yours. There won't be any of this wandering around in tent sort of thing. You're going to move in. You're going to build cities. It'll be great. It'll be yours. So much so that thousands of years later, they're still going to call it by the name Israel. Now, what do we do with that? Why does that matter to me and to you. Will you understand, don't you, what it means to have a place? I mean, we live in a very rootless society, a, a fairly rootless culture, especially if you're from around the city. We're not used to being, uh, well, some people aren't used to being rooted and others are. But you understand the significance of place, don't you? 
I just met two new people, and one of the first questions I asked them is, where are you from? You understand that your place informs something of your identity, does it not? So that if you don't have a place, if you don't know where you're from, something of your identity is missing. We might could even argue in the ancient terms that it's hard to take that seriously. You feel unmoored, unrooted. And so God is saying place matters. And here's, here's the neat thing. Here's what happens for those who are in Christ. We are heirs of a place. Yes, there is the personal salvation. Yes, we know the Lord, but it's more than that. And it's not a narrow strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea. The promise of God is not that we get Israel. The promise of God is a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. The promise of God is actually the Garden of Eden reborn as a beautiful city in which God is its center. And so the place promise still applies. It just far exceeds anything we ever saw in the Old Testament. God's glory will now fill the earth as the waters, uh, as the waters fill the sea, right? We have a place. It's a renewed heavens and a new earth. And so we are still heirs of these promises, but they look different. So what do we do with that? Well, I hope you see that as we, as you, as we went through that, I will bring you out. I will make you my own. I will give you a place. That that's salvation language, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. That when Jesus comes to do the better saving work, what does he do? He brings people out from under the burden of sin. He brings them out of death, out of darkness, into life. He brings them out from slavery to the law that kills into the freedom of the law of love. As Jesus would say, come to me, all who are weary, all who are broken in spirit under harsh slavery. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? So Jesus breaks the yoke of sin and brings us into the yoke with himself. See, there's no, there's no salvation apart from identification with Jesus. We're brought out from sin. We're brought into relationship with God. So, so much so that we can say, he is my God and I am his son. I am his daughter. Because of the beloved son, this is adoption language. Because of the beloved son, we are, we are brought out of the, of the family, the, the broken family we used to know and brought into the family of the redeemed. Where we say, I am the Lord's and he is mine. And then we still look forward one day, someday to the place that he is providing for us. What did Jesus say? Uh, the night that he was betrayed to his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, would I have told you? 
In my father's house are many rooms. That's a that's a promise of a place. So much better than a sandy, rocky bit of soil on the Mediterranean Sea. It is the father's house that we are promised to be in. And so we look to the past. We look to the future. And then, this one didn't really fit in a neat category, we look through the brokenness. We look through these ordinary broken people. You might kind of wonder as we read through this, it's almost like the story comes to a halt, right? There's this, there's a, in TV terms, we call it a cliffhanger. Where God tells Moses, all right, Moses, I'm reassuring you, this is who I am, this is what I promised, go tell the Israelites. And Moses kind of picks himself up, he says, okay, got it. He goes and tells the Israelites, and they're just like, nah, 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 I don't want to hear it, don't want to hear it, leave us alone, stop talking, right? They don't want to hear him, they're they're broken in spirit, their their slavery is too harsh. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's harshness has worked, and their ears are closed to what Moses has to say. And so what does God say to Moses? All right, wipe them out. We'll start over with somebody else. No. He looks at Moses and Aaron and he says, go talk to Pharaoh. I've given you a charge concerning the people. You've, you've done your part. Let me worry about the rest. You do what you're told to do. You've talked to the people. Now it's time to go talk to Pharaoh. And what does Moses say? Look, man, they won't listen to me. If my own people won't listen to me, then surely my lips aren't good enough to be talking to Pharaoh. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? That's what he means when he says, I am of uncircumcised lips. My lips are no good. They are no good to you. Moses is kind of trying to get out from underneath it again. And it's right there that the story kind of breaks. It's right there that that we, we stop kind of with Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh And we get a genealogy? Like, is that what you thought was going to happen next? It's like halftime. I don't know. Um, why, Why in the world would we get Moses and Aaron's family history? Well, let's just, let's just run through, because these names, many of these names aren't familiar to me, and most of them, um, most of them probably aren't familiar to you either. So let's just run through. These are actually, we start with, uh, with the sons of Jacob. So these are Israel's sons, the 12 tribes, right? And the first one we get to is Reuben. The second one was Simeon. And they're, they're not really who we want to talk about. And so the author just keeps going. He tells you they're there, but then he keeps moving. And then we get to Levi. Now, um, lest you think that, uh, that these... These forefathers, kind of like we look at our own forefathers, like, oh, these were like pillars of society. Let's just talk about these sons of Jacob real quick. Um, So when the sons of Jacob came back into the land we call Israel, into Canaan, they had a sister whose name was uh, Dinah. And uh, Dinah was captured by a group of men in Shechem, and she was raped, uh, which is a very sad story. And what Reuben and Levi decide that they're going to do is um, they're going to lie to all the people, all the men in Shechem. They're going to tell them, hey, we'll we'll be buddies with you. You just need to be circumcised. So the men of Shechem say, hey, that's a good idea. And while they're recovering from that minor surgery, um, Reuben, remember, this is the ancient world. There's not a whole lot of anesthesia, right? Uh, Reuben and Levi 
go in and they slaughter every single one of them. They lie to them, and then they slaughter them. That's the kind of people that God makes promises to. So that's, uh, that's Levi, and that's, that's the tribe that Moses and Aaron are a part of. Uh, and then we kind of keep going. And in case you would think that God's people, well, they're this, they're this pure, undefiled group. You know, they've maintained the, the family name. Well, we learn that one of the sons there in Simeon's line is of a Canaanite woman. Now, the Canaanites were pretty despicable people. They, like, sacrificed their own children to their gods, okay? So, children in the room, if, you, uh, if you're kind of, if, if you're chafing under the control of your parents, if you feel like, man, I've got terrible parents, I don't know why they make me go to church, um, you know, a few thousand years ago, they could have burned you at the altar to Molech. So, sitting in here is not really all that bad compared to what you could have gotten if you were born into another family. All right? But, lo and behold, there's the son of a Canaanite woman in this family tree. That's not really pure blood. Um, let's see, what else, do we, what else can we pick up in here? So, the sons of Levi. Let's talk for a second. It is a little odd that uh, Amram, which is Moses' dad, married his aunt. Technically, there, weren't, there wasn't a law against this at that point, so it's not really wrong. It's just odd, maybe. Um, Aaron and Moses, and then they mention that they're... So Aaron's cousin, Aaron and Moses' cousins, uh, one of them was named Korah. Now, when this book is written, when Exodus is written, it is right before the Israelites are about to go in and take the promised land. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible and gave them to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. So they would know the name Korah well. Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and his family was swallowed up by the earth because they dared to challenge Moses. So they hear the name Korah, that rings in their ears. Uh, and the Korahites are, are important in the, um, they're part of, they're part of the worship of God. And then we have Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu. You may not know those names, but if you were to read on into the book of Numbers, Nadab and Abihu were supposed to be priests, so they were going to follow Aaron. Aaron's line, by the way, is the priestly line. Nobody gets to be high priest unless you were a son, grandson, etc. of Aaron. Well, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decide to walk into the sanctuary of the Lord with what's called unauthorized fire. Basically, they decided they were going to worship the Lord in the way that they wanted to rather than the way that he had commanded them to. And the result was that they got smoked, literally, like fire from the altar disintegrated them because they took the worship of the Lord too lightly. Again, those would have been names that rang in the ears of the people hearing this being read to them as they were about to go in. And so why is this genealogy here? It's interesting that after all of that is said, it says this in verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. It was this Moses and this Aaron. God is giving us background. Moses 
is giving us his background to show how God keeps his promise even through all of these broken, quirky, weird, and disobedient people. That God is more committed to rescuing his people than even the people themselves. They think they want to be rescued. God knows he wants to rescue them. They like the idea of being rescued from slavery. God is the one who knows what it takes and knows what he's going to have to do to do it. And so we get this little halftime walking through Moses and Aaron's dysfunctional family to tell us where they came from, who these people are, but also remind us that God is committed to his people even through the brokenness, even through the disobedience. Right At any point, God could have said, you know what, you guys are really jacked up. I'm going to go with somebody else. Y'all need to kind of figure this thing out and I'll come back. But he doesn't do that because he knows. He knows the kind of people he's coming in to rescue. He knows the grace that it takes to save sinners from themselves. And he is faithful to exercise that grace in the past, in the present, and in the future, and always. So that thousands of years later, talk about heroes in the Bible, Peter. Bold Peter. Bold, I'm never going to leave you, Lord Peter. Who boldly leaves the Lord as soon as he's pressured to do it. Do you know him? Not me. He curses himself, right? He's swearing at himself, saying, no, 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 I don't know the Lord. And yet the Lord Jesus comes to Peter after that, and he restores him, and he says, feed my sheep. It's that Peter who would write to the church and say, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Called not by your own name, but by the name of the Lord. You are the redeemed. That's the God who's faithful. That's who we look to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are committed to us. You are committed to save. Yes, because we need it. And yes. Because most of the time, we want it. But ultimately, underneath and through and all around that is your commitment to your own name. That speaks a better word. A better word than any leader or politician we've ever heard. Everyone else will break their promises, Lord, but not you. You say, I am the Lord. Here is what I will do. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And as we look through the the plagues where your arm is bared against evil, we look also to the cross where both of your arms are outstretched. Again, against evil. But not, not in power, but in weakness.
serving, dying. The death of the firstborn. Lord, this is, this is what brings us home. This is how you secure all of your precious promises to your people. Through your own son. Who had his own flawed family tree and yet was perfect. Who spoke better words and worked more powerful wonders than Moses or Aaron ever did. The great and mighty and humble Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, may we trust and rest in you and in you alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Yeah.